Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I am so sick of people selling their psyches for a little attention. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, apparently, I don't know if you knew this, several sources are telling me that Arthur C. Clarke wrote a novel version of 2001 in Space Odyssey, and he answered some of the questions that we talked about last episode. <laughs> Why did we waste so much time talking about those questions? We're going to have to pull the episode. I know. <laughs> it's too bad because it's, you know, it's doing well, like a lot of downloads. <laughs> we speculated so much and the answers were there the whole time. The whole time, you know? It is, it is hilarious. How, like with all sincerity, the people who have written to say, like, actually, <laughs> that thing that you <laughs> and Sam <laughs> were discussing was clearly laid out by Arthur C. Clarke. Like why? It's like they felt that we wasted their time. Um, <laughs> right. when, uh, but I, or more that we wasted our own time, like, our own time. and it's too bad because you know like we could have talked about something <laughs> that wasn't fully settled you know <laughs> right so yeah you i saw uh in a tweet exchange you had i think this morning um you laid out i think what what we all were thinking which is that that you can take works I'm, I'm embarrassed to even have to spell this out because I just assumed <laughs> that this is what people uh, w- already would, thought would already <laughs> believe. But 2001 as a film uh, stands alone as a work of art. And yeah. sure, uh, Arthur Clarke flushed out some of the ideas. And it, like they even might be the ideas that directly led uh, Stanley Kubrick to, to make the choices that he did. But the, doesn't mean that those are the answers, uh, at least not to the questions we're asking. Like, I, I, I don't know. It seems like such a concrete mindset to adopt when, when discussing a film. Well, it's this whole idea of what's canon and what's not that, that, that is tackling uh, some kind of story that has different genres and different variations. Um, you know, and, and sometimes the people, you know, like in this case, they collaborated another almost identical example. I was saying this on Twitter too, is David Lynch and Mark Frost in the season three of Twin Peaks collaborated on the screenplay just, uh, in the same way that Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick did. And then Frost went off to write his second novel, um, on Twin Peaks. He had w- written one earlier. Uh, this one was called The Final Dossier. And it's a very similar thing where the book is true to the characters, but it answers certain questions that Lynch very deliberately doesn't answer. 
you know, I get why people will just say, oh, well, that's the answer in the in the yeah. show. Like, there's just one universe that they're right. both filling in details about. But I really think that's not how either of them look at it. Like, and, like I don't think that's how Kubrick, Clark, Frost, and Lynch look at it. They look at it as their own takes on this common story. And just like the Greeks would have many takes on Oedipus or Achilles or, you know, the the house of Agamemnon, there are tons of different takes about them. It's not no. that they, they, they differ. They're inconsistent at times. And certainly some of them uh, fill in more details than others. But uh, that's just how art works. Yeah. So there's the question of whether or not there is an answer like in like out there in the world um, that you might appeal to. So so the Arthur Clarke book exists and it and it has a very clear interpretation of what the monoliths are with like a, a very rich backstory about who the aliens were and what their goals were. And I, like you just said, choose to sort of take the film on its own uh without viewing the book as the the like whatever you know the bible of of the movie but also there is the question of what what kubrick uh believed the star child was representing when he was making the movie which as uh like somebody sent us a clip which like he actually did say Right. He had a very clear uh, belief about what he was trying to symbolize uh, with the story. I, I think maybe my view is extreme and it kind of goes against my temperament, but I believe that not even that matters in my discussion of the of the film and my interpretation of the film. And, and I think and I, also it's been overplayed the degree to which Kubrick was giving very specific answers. He would get yeah. chatty in an interview, but I think he's very... He, he he intentionally wants to leave these questions open and not answer them. That And that's, this is what I think creators, like good creators do. Like there's a reason that they don't go around explaining what they thought. It, it could very well be that Kubrick has spelled out, he probably does have it spelled out so clearly in his mind, um, but he knows that that's not the goal of the work of art that he was producing. It's not like a... It's it's not like a Scooby Doo mystery where at the end you figure out everything and it's no right, right. <laughs> and he doesn't think of it that way. He doesn't think yeah. this is the answer, and I'm just leaving it open to see like who's smart enough to figure it out. It's not like that. Like he he, I think he regards his own opinion as just one opinion, just one of many. Yeah, yeah like informed yeah. opinion for sure, but right. uh, still right. just one opinion. The, the text is the text. Uh, yeah. And, Exactly. And I love that because I actually believe that uh, works of art can um, come from a place where there is there's communication from Kubrick to us that he might not even be privy to. Right. So like that there is a collection of symbols and imagery and emotions that exists in Kubrick that he then puts in the film that he might not be well equipped to. Uh, explain or describe um, totally yeah you know um yeah prince in an interview once I, i'm pretty sure i'm remembering right spelled it out very clearly he's like you know when people ask me what these lyrics mean i just think this is the stupidest question in the world like of course like i could say i'm oh yeah i was talking about this girl that i had a relationship with but then it actually robs everybody of the meaning that they may have created themselves 
um, which is his goal to begin with, right? Like, and, and as an artist, I don't think you would want to rob your audience of that joy that like the, what we had for whatever, two hours with Sam, the just pleasure of, of yep. discussing and, and trying to unravel the themes. Yeah. The difference between Lynch and Kubrick, I think they're very similar, like the way they view uh, the function of art and how to approach art. But just Lynch is just way more upfront about that. He will say like the whole closure is a way of forgetting that you've seen the damn thing or it's just a word for forgetting that you've seen the damn thing like that's the that like he just is very straightforward about it whereas weirdly actually because Kubrick was such a private reserved person and also completely paranoid that he was going to get like assassinated at any moment and never wanting to leave London I mean I guess the paranoia was justified it turned out in the end but he will just also like in in interviews just open up about like what he was thinking and what he was but in the actual art like he he's very deliberate about what he chooses to tell you and what he chooses not to tell you and he knows by not telling you that means it's open right you know there's there's this other thing that um you know i'm sure philosophers of, of art have talked about this like so much and so well the interpretation so, well. so yeah <laughs> so much um, so much <laughs> like the the whole uh you get this reaction sometimes from people saying like you know that it did it didn't mean shit like the curtains were red it that, that didn't mean anything right and and I, i'm always of the belief that yeah like maybe even the artist didn't think when they put in red curtains that they meant something like maybe they weren't yeah, saying it's like, a pure oh, intuition. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, it's that's just art. It's just how an artist would work. Like if they, yeah. if they were like, Oh, I'm feeling blue. <gasps> Let's make it blue. Yeah. Cause he's sad. Cause the main <laughs> character is sad. No, yeah. that's not, I don't think that's how it works. I wish I was more of an artist and I could give more of an authoritative. Uh, yeah. I wish I'm speaking on. as if I know, <laughs> as if I know what it's like to be an artist. Um, but, but like, are, is this a postmodern view of some sort? Like, <laughs> I don't like, think so. Like, I think it's just like the normal view and a lot of people aren't, uh, you know, like there are probably times in my life where I've had a less, what I consider now to be like sophisticated way yeah. of approaching art, you know? Oh, and, I absolutely did. I, mean, yeah. I, was, I was the, I was a huge Philistine, like in literature class in high school. I was like, the cat doesn't mean shit. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> no, I think I did that too. Like, like in college, maybe even to, <laughs> at least like up to a point, And then I like snapped out of it. You do need somebody to like almost shake you out of it, you know, like yeah. s- slap you like, a, like a, someone does in an old movie to a, <laughs> a woman, you know? So, oh my God. This is You're hysterical. Tangent. Yeah. I was just. I was watching when I was in Qatar, I, I was watching a bunch of noir films and hilarious the way that they would grab a woman. And slap the them. Hayes Code had no problem <laughs> with just slapping a woman if she started like talking too fast or like... Calm down, sweetheart. <laughs> And I was watching the Maltese Falcon and he's telling his assistant like, now that's a good girl. Yeah. And I was like, that's just creep. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I get that maybe people are afraid that you could run rampant if you don't if you don't have um some discipline some boundaries like you could just start interpreting things willy-nilly like a schizophrenic person would but um but i'd rather that than rob the fun out of it <laughs> by telling me exactly what you meant 
And to be clear, the, the overwhelming uh, like response to the episode, and even on this topic, has been yeah. positive. And, and I don't even we're just uh, like bitching for no yeah. reason. Yeah, I, I don't even mind the the listeners who who bother to write either. in. You know, yeah. Like, yeah, it's a very big thing in like Lynch Frost world. You know, like what you count as you know, something that actually happened and what you don't. And there's a few things that are inconsistent between the books and the story and the, the film. And one of the things I was thinking about, let me run this by you. Is there something about film and also song, like in the Prince example, which is a really good example, like, because songs are very not explicit about yeah. what they're doing. Is there something about the genre itself that lends itself more to open-ended interpretation, whereas uh, novels need more questions answered than these other forms. Maybe because all there is is the words, there's nothing else to, you know, fill in the gaps of what you're supposed to feel. And Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my intuition is strong that that's the case. Um, I think so, and I, too, yeah. And maybe even the more you know, visual art and, and poetry and, and music are, they, they're evocative, not, not via the root of like telling you things propositionally. You yeah. Know, some songs do obviously, you know, but, but songs that are closer to poetry. This is why I always laugh. Like when, when rappers say shit, like there's nothing else behind it. When they say like, I have a big dick, it's not like a symbolic. <laughs> Like 9-11. <laughs> but like the more the more abstract and the closer you get to like evoking without without the words, I think the the more when we have to interpret it with words, then we have yeah. a lot more freedom. Um yeah. And if there's one thing 2001 the film doesn't have is a lot of words. <laughs> a lot of words. No. Uh, there, you know, there were some things that like um had I known before could have added to my interpretation, like that were just factual. You know, I was saying something about the 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 future that Clark was envisioning, looking like it was friendlier um, between Russia and the United States, and then people pointed out that uh, the conversation was really about you know the U.S. hiding information from like that's that's where like if I paid more attention to the words, like I accept that totally. that yeah. there's a corrective. So it's. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And I actually have no problem with, like, I haven't read the book, the the, uh, yeah. the uh, novel that Arthur C. Clarke did and any of the sequels, but, like, I have no problem with him answering it, those yeah. questions in the work. But that's just that work. Yeah. But we were talking about the, the film. Yeah. Like, I feel like we uh, could have a whole conversation about canon in, in all this stuff. Like, can, yeah, it could. is a really interesting concept. Uh, and my, my favorite examples are always from comics because you have, like... Uh, Batman has been written since the 1940s and you have all these iterations of Batman that are wildly different from each other. Like the Frank Miller Batman, who's like aggro and yeah. violent and, and the less aggro detective Batman, but they, they have to make a Batman Bible for anybody who's writing Batman. Like, cause there are things that you, so you have like freedom, um, to do to to right. work in like some aspects, but then there are some things like that you can never change, like the way right. that his parents died, like that cannot change. I thought like shooting somebody was one of them, but then apparently there's a Batman where he shoots somebody. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So even those are probably a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, they, I'm sure they are, and it might just depend on like who the editor was that day who like approved it. All right, so before we get to the second segment, which is now. 
uh, is Chess a game? Like, prelusory, no, illusory techmates is Chess a game. That's our opening segment. Talk about an audible. Audible. Like, I would never have thought, you might hear me, I haven't edited it yet, but you might hear me get converted to analytic philosophy (laughs) in real time. Like, like, I'm still a little bit freaked out about what happened it's like it's like you kissed your first boy and now you're wondering (laughs) (laughs) before we get to that so when we last recorded uh, our opening i think the opening question was about kanye yeah you asked the opening question right and that was only when he had tweeted out the like death con three thing and whatever other accompanying tweets there were to that it was before that big interview yeah. came out that's bad shit <laughs> I, I don't think it would have changed my answer on those questions I stand with yay also like it's a microaggression to call <laughs> so now ever since that episode he's been um, pretty much all partnerships have been severed including Jalen Brown who is the biggest mensch in the whole NBA so yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried about a whole lot of things, which is like, I shouldn't spend my time worrying about, um, but, but one, I think Kanye, and I'm just going to keep calling him Kanye, sorry. He's in such a state that I think it's actually unethical to interview him for, for not just for what he's saying, but because like, I, I feel like it's, it's just, it's a bit of a, a cash grab. Because you know that he's yeah, gonna, it's also rubbernecking. Too. Yeah, like exactly. The other thing that really distresses me is how many people I've seen coming to his defense, like on on Twitter, YouTube, just as full of comments from like uh, just people who think he's just speaking the truth, like, and and he's getting. And so that makes me just really worry about losing all the deals. Is making those people just confirming confirming their, it. Yeah. yeah and in an ideal world we would all just ignore him uh, yeah i like i'll always love him the artist per, the stuff that he's produced as an artist um but it has tainted it for me a bit now well that's good that it tainted it a bit just you know? a bit i love the old kanye or he was just anti-black or <laughs> right it's so funny like that uh, like that all the um Stuff with the like, all lives matter. Yeah, the white lives matter, not just all. I mean, lives, I mean, yeah. uh, white lives matter. Like that just got uh, ignored. Yeah, but, I know. You know. That's yeah. that's how the world works. It's you know that's he clearly doesn't have a very coherent worldview. You know, like uh, he, I think and I believe that he really does feel like he's pro black. And so now, like you could just see in his, he's just been beaten down. Like he feels like he feels like a victim now, and. I don't know. It's a it's a fucking shit show. And the only person I can compare him to that I can think of is Jesse Single. <laughs> <laughs> Fame does terrible things to to people. There's people who become just shut-ins and let their fingernails grow and piss in jars because <laughs> because they got famous. They got famous and they had a lot of money and I think it's just it, it is a lot of stress <laughs> like Howard, Howard Hughes. Okay, got it. Yeah, got it. <laughs> uh, it took me a sec. <laughs> like I had to think of the Simpsons where Mr. Burns is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that. Yeah. All right. Well, 
we've settled we that. <laughs> we we solved that. Uh, the kind the nation as a whole can move on. We can start the healing process, and also you know leave Jews alone. Yeah, that's a good. We've su- that's good advice. We're actually all right. You know, we can be a little much. What I feel bad is for all you Jews who ha- who are like broke. You know, and you have to put up with this. You're like, a few right. of us made it, <laughs> and right. now I pay the price. No, that's right. It's like being like a really poor white person <laughs> and then hearing about like how like white people just privileges just like you know some person in Eastern Kentucky hears about like white privilege and how that just guarantees you a perfect life. You know, like that's how the Jews that like me that didn't make any money feel. <laughs> Broke Jews unite. <laughs> And if we could have solidarity with like the other kind of uh, f- failures of their uh, ethnicity, like we could actually bring about like a real uh, systemic. This conversation is really a case of the longer we talk, the, <laughs> just, greater the, the more ch- just the greater the chances that the we're going to know that we're going to say something that gets us in real trouble. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. I think I could handle fame. So, like, if right. the thing that's making you not make us famous <laughs> is that you're worried about, like, whether we could handle it, like, I think we'll be... Um, <laughs> You'll be okay. We'll be good. As yeah. long as you continue taking your medication. <laughs> like, with all the edibles. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, when we come back, we are going to talk about whether chess is a game. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know how life can just seem completely overwhelming and frustrating and everything is way more of a pain in the ass than it used to? Like just going to Home Depot and getting some appliances that just broke down and they try to deliver it like four or five times and there's always a problem with it and you end up having to spend like 10 hours on the phone with them to try to figure out what's going on and everyone keeps passing you off to somebody else and it can all seem like this bureaucratic maze of bullshit and it can start to drive you crazy it can get you in a bad rut when you have other things that you have to deal with and these challenges just start piling up on each other and you feel like it's it's just it's too much you just want to burrow into some hole and hide there until it's all over well (laughs) well this is one of the ways that therapy can help a therapist can help you become a better problem solver God, that would be nice. Making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or how small or just how pointlessly, frustratingly, infuriatingly hard to get done, even though it seems like it would be a simple thing. And there's no better feeling than finding your own solutions to a problem. God, again, that would be nice, which makes you more confident you can address the challenges you're facing. I know many people who have been helped by therapy in ways that they never thought possible. It can help you understand yourself better, understand others in your life better, to have equanimity in the face of all these complications that seem to come up over and over again. Um, It can give you the resources to better handle all of it. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, Try BetterHelp. It's a great option. It is convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time for whatever reason. So when you want to be a better 
problem solver, therapy can help you get there. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time under continued attack and uh, protest. We soldier on. Um, This is the time where we love to sincerely and not boredly thank our listeners for contacting us, for emailing us, for getting in touch with us in all the different ways that you do. Um, It means a lot to us. We love to uh, hear from um, listeners. We just got an, e- an email a couple days ago of somebody that we inspired to go back first to uh, get their MA and now their PhD and they got their yeah. PhD all because they listened to us like way the fuck back then. Yeah, I feel like we took 100% credit for it when he got his master's and we're going to take 100% credit for it now. <laughs> yeah. like I, I think like what he does from here, we only get like 75% credit, you know, but... <laughs> So if you would like to email us or contact us, you can email us verybedwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at peas at Tamler or at verybedwizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, join the lively community on the subreddit. You can also subscribe on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We just got a just a devastating one-star review. <laughs> Not like a funny one-star review, repugnant, but a very critical, like a lot of slurs, like neoliberal, yeah. meritocrats. Like, I don't even know what the fuck that means. <laughs> but you, I'm happy that the response to the 2001 episode was pretty good. We got a lot, yeah, we got a lot of good. Overall, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can always go to our Very Bad Wizard support page and see those uh, various methods there. You can get swag, you can get some mugs, you can um, get some t-shirts. You can give us a PayPal donation one time or recurring. And you can become one of our Patreon supporters, which we really appreciate. Uh, $1 and up on Patreon, you get all of our episodes ad-free and you also get access to a collection of my beats. Six collections. Six collections of my beats. I've made a lot of beats for this show. What what episode is 238? Um, so at least that many at $2 and up, you get all of our bonus content, uh, all of our bonus episodes. We have been, I've loved the response we get to the ambulators. Cause if you love Deadwood, uh, uh, it's just, yeah, that's, that's really all I want. I'm, I'm very happy for the increased number of patrons.
questions, but like to somebody tweeted at us that it was a perfect companion to so good. If you love, if you like Deadwood, you're our people. Like, uh, I feel like that's, that says enough. Um, at $5 and up, you get all of that stuff. Plus you get to vote on an episode topic. Um, you also get access to our five part series on Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. You get a few videos, my intro psych video, Tamler's Plato's video, uh, Plato's videos. Can't even talk. <laughs> Tamler's videos. It's videos of me making like Play-Doh. sculptures with Plato. <laughs> I'd pay for that. <laughs> and finally, at $10 and up, you get to ask us a question for our monthly Ask Us Anything series, uh, which we record on video and release to you. Um, but we also release this audio for the $2 and up supporters. So thank you to everybody for all your support. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank you. All right, let's get to this discussion about whether chess is, in fact, a game. I put, I think I tweeted this out and I also said it in our Slack, that I would quit the podcast if we couldn't talk about this paper <laughs> <laughs> called Illusory Checkmates, Why Chess is Not a Game by Michael Hickson, a philosopher, I think, at Trent. Trent, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, not, a gr- not a grad student. <laughs> and, and this was tweeted out by Liam Bright. He, he, the paper gives like an argument as to why chess is not a game. game. But, and uh, Liam tweeted out, I think this paper <laughs> overlooks the fact that chess is a game. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, this paper hits a lot of my, like pushes a lot of my buttons about analytic philosophy and, and the methods of analytic philosophy. Uh, but what I like about this paper also is that it has a, it, it's such a extreme example of the way I think analytic philosophy just misunderstands <laughs> life. <laughs> but it also has a kind of surrealness in both the how extreme it is, but then also like stuff, just weird stuff, like how he talks about the grasshopper. And I guess this grasshopper that is in a dialogue with, uh, uh, you know, that, that a different author wrote about this debate. And like, as I'm reading it, I start to like visualize a giant grasshopper <laughs> engaging in like a completely inane debate. Just, I, I and like, I honestly, like I, I had a little bit, like I was, I was freaking out. No, I wasn't freaking out because I was enjoying it. But uh, yeah, it was surreal, you know? The, the uh, I, I think that with the addition also of some of the uh, diagrams mm-hmm. where like, the entire chessboard is populated with queens and there's like oh, one yes. king. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's like, shit, what did I smoke before? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have nightmares about that. You know? <laughs> like, I'm the king and the rest of the board is queens. Fuck. <laughs> or good. You know? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the grasshoppers, uh, I, I believe the grasshoppers rival is a character named Skepticus. <laughs> Skepticus. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I got He's clearly a Decepticon, by the way, like in my head. <laughs> you see this like ancient Greece, Greek, like in a toga, debating this giant grasshopper. I, I am skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, here's what I, let me just give my broad 
view on this that I think somebody's crazy here. <laughs> like somebody is crazy, and if it's me, that's fine. Uh, like take me away. But like the, I, I, it feels to me like they have taken something that you might talk about in a bar <laughs> that you might have drinks like at a bar and be like, you know, is bowling alone a sport? Or is like, you know, and they, they think that there is some kind of, you know, fact of the matter about these things that will be settled by most specific and obscure detail that will actually settle the question. Uh, like that this is a true false question about whether chess is a game or not. And <laughs> like, like, and you can make discoveries that will uh, bear on the question of whether chess is a game. And that just seems like a fundamental misunderstanding of like of language and the role of language, the function of language. It's, it's um, like someone took a, a, a discussion in a, in a Tarantino film mm -hmm. and like, <laughs> Exactly. And, 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 and like wrote metaphysics, like had a whole <laughs> metaphysical debate about it. Um, or, or, or is this metaphysics? I don't know. I don't, I guess. I, I don't, I don't know. What is it? I, I never quite know when something is metaphysics. I guess, I guess like a game exists, like it, it exists as a game, then it, then it is making an ontological claim. So it is metaphysics, but like it it, it's certainly not explicit. Um, is it in the captured by this uh, <laughs> member of the set of games or something like <laughs> Okay, hold on. Say yeah. Say what he's arguing. Or, you know, in the Should I read sense. that the ab abstract? Sure. Uh, yeah. In this essay, I argue that chess is not a game. I begin by arguing the narrower point that chess is not is not a game in the sense of game de de developed by Bernard Suits. Chess is not a Suitsian game because chess lacks a prelusory goal. Now we might spend like just the rest of the, all of our time <laughs> discussing what that a prelusory goal is. But chess lacks a prelusory goal, which is a goal that is identifiable before a game is played because no checkmate position is knowably achieved before chess is played. Checkmate is a post-lusory discovery about chess, not a pre-lusory goal of chess. And chess consequently has more in common with mathematics and physics than it has in common with darts, sprints, and lawn bowling. That I those are the those, examples. I love that those are the examples. <laughs> Who thinks that sprints like, are a game? Just the <laughs> paradigmatic games of sprints and lawn bowling. Uh, and then the, the final uh, sentence of the abstract is various objections are answered. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. That's awesome. Just fucking read. Just read till the end. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. <laughs> that's um, based. <laughs> We haven't done our conceptual analysis on so, base. Right. Okay. There's a lot there's a lot to unpack about this. A lot. There's a few things I want to say. One is that I um like analytic philosophy more than you, obviously. So I look forward to opening segments because that's the only time nowadays that you'll ever uh permit <laughs> analytic philosophy to be discussed. That claim entails what I'm about to say, which is that I actually think that there is something interesting. Perhaps not valuable, <laughs> but interesting in unpacking a concept in this way. And I think, I mean, there's a big question as to what like the overall goal is that none of these papers ever spell out. And I think we've talked and about what this the before. underlying assumptions. Yeah. Are okay. So here's like, yeah. Here's what I think is going on. I think it has to be the case that that there is a belief that the concept of game that we all like employ um when we're talking to each other 
and categorizing these things, that it has come to share features that are not explicit, but that nonetheless really do dictate what we all mean by game. But that every once in a while will abuse the concept and include things in the category that we ourselves upon reflection would realize we ought not include. So if you have the, like the internet loves the debate as to whether a hot dog is a sandwich. Right. And in that debate, like what you're doing is appealing through, usually through example to intuitions about what is a sandwich and what is not. And it's fun. And it's right. fun because we all do seem to share some sort of rules. And like I saw a tweet thread the other day where someone like bit the bullet and said, a sandwich is this. And everybody was tweeting back with counterexamples. I don't remember what the specific claim was. This is what, this is the, that's the proper arena for this kind of question is Twitter. <laughs> but, why, but why not say like, take that tweet thread and unpack it and, and write it, you know, albeit poorly, like in a real paper. Like that's why I say it's not valuable, but it's, but it's not crazy. It's crazy in that I think when you publish it in Synthes, which is a good journal and, um, I, I've never you know, pronounced think, that out loud. It's synthes. I always say thin synthes in my mind. I think it's synthes. Um, yeah, I, I defer to you. Certainly, if not, then I've been making a fool of myself. <laughs> uh, Two ways in which you've discovered you might be crazy. Yeah, which uh, yeah, which I fully <laughs> accept that that's a possibility. But like, I, it feels like I think the assumption when you're talking about whether a hot dog is a sandwich is that okay? I mean, there's not like. This is some kind of fact that could be discoverable through it's like ultimately it's up to you whether you decide <laughs> whether, uh, you know, like and, and the, the value of those kinds of discussions is it makes you think about like, well, what are these things that aren't even transparent to me? Uh, these assumptions that I have about what a sandwich is, but. Only in the sense that, you know, like, oh, I, I, like, I didn't know that I was thinking about sandwiches in this way. That's interesting. What it doesn't do is show, show you the, oh, I'm mistaken about whether, right. uh, like, there's no way to do that because there's just not a fact of the matter. It is, uh, it is a vague word that either can or can't uh, apply to hot dogs, <laughs> right? Like, it's not something that is settled. There's that, like, I don't know, like, th this is what I mean, the underlying assumptions. Like, is there, like, a platonic uh, reality in which, yeah. like, uh, of a sandwich that, like, doesn't have hot dogs that, you know, the conditions of a, of a <laughs> sandwich, do, like, don't apply to hot dogs? I, I just, like, I don't know what they think would, like, be the truth maker of their claims. Yeah, so this is why I think, like, maybe Hickson and people on Twitter think that they're, they're doing metaphysics, but I don't think that you have to, like, I think that actually that would be no, like a, definitely a, not. I, I think that would be a, a mistake to think that, you know, cause obviously sandwich is arose, like the concept arose out of, like you say, sort of a, a vague label for the, some practice we engaged in of putting the Earl of sandwich, <laughs> the Earl of play sandwich cards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, so if you set aside that, which I think is kind of a crazy claim that there is the discovery of like some, like that we peeped into the platonic cave and found the game. Um, well, no, we peeked out of it. Peeked out of, sorry, the platonic cave and found, yeah. found the game. If you set that aside and say, no, it's simply that we deploy these concepts with rules that we're not even sure of. And let's see what those rules are. Um, I think it's, it's fun and interesting because or else 
people wouldn't argue back about the sa- the sandwich thing. Like when you say, when you say like, okay, here, I swear to God, this is what a sandwich is. It's anything that is between two bread products. And like somebody says, oh, okay, like is a wrap a sandwich or whatever. And then you can say, oh shit, no, I don't, I don't think it is because I would never, mm. I would never use that as a sandwich. And then you say, well, so what do I mean? Now, again, <laughs> I think that this is all a game. But I think it's a game with rules. It's not complete bullshit. It's like a it's a game of discovering what rules we use. And yeah. if you want to say fuck it, a hot dog is a sandwich. Who cares what a sandwich is? Then sure. And maybe it shouldn't be published in synthes. But but yeah, I, like I agree with you. I think it's where it gets ridiculous is where it goes beyond getting people to kind of re-examine their assumptions about how they deploy this concept and more like, here's this uh, weird chess position that you don't know whether it's actually could have happened in a game or not. It's like a weird mate that it's not clear whether it could have come up in a game or not. And because of the... (laughs) existence of these kinds of positions chess is not a game it's like no we we didn't have any assumptions at the level of detail that they're talking about number one and number two there's no reason to think that it will all be explained by a tight theory whether like a just a necessary and sufficient conditions kind of theory which is how like this paper which we should talk about (laughs) looks at it right there's no reason to think that the way we deploy concepts is in that manner of necessary and sufficient conditions. And once you realize that that is a completely unjustified and borderline insane assumption to make about a word like, or a concept like sandwich or game, uh, this was Wittgenstein's point, right? Like once you realize that, then, okay, this is this is something we can do that's fun and maybe enlightening and maybe therapy as Wittgenstein <laughs> says, but like it's not, what it poses as you know like like some kind of like uh discovery where like we have to pick a the the theory that best suits the concept because you just don't that's not how it works yeah so i do think there has to be the intention in in writing something like this that there is true discovery being made and i I can't get fully on board with that here's what i think is really bad about the way analytic philosophy has gone. And I think this paper is a good example of it. Sure, you can start with the question, what is a sandwich? And we can have these fun debates on the internet. And then somebody starts off by saying, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to write a treatise on what makes a sandwich. And so they lay out, like with all the examples that they've gathered from the internet and people's intuitions about what is and what isn't a sandwich, they lay out kind of like a, a, a set of conditions that they think it, uh, makes a sandwich. Yeah. And then they well, say, I'll die on this hill. Yeah. Well, then somebody comes along and says, well, so-and-so said that this is what sandwiches were. And I'm going to show how like assumption three was wrong. And then they come up with like a, a theory of what a sandwich <laughs> right. is. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have people replying to people replying to people. And the concept that they're using by that point actually seems so divorced from the concept we started with because right. they've been trying to rule follow the whole time and like yep, bu- exactly. bite the bullet. Like so that you have like five yeah. people who have bitten a bullet. And so then you get to like this guy, Bernard Suits, who has like now like whatever, the dominant theory of what a game is. <laughs> and this guy is like trying to, sh- to use that framework. And it's completely like uh, divorced right. from anything that would be in a, 
you know, discussion over beers between guys and attorneys. Exactly. You know, I think this paper goes, like, begins and ends past, like, anything interesting that I would learn about the way I deploy the concept of game. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And because okay, so you- it's already, like... Uh, five steps in. I think you <laughs> right. described it perfectly how it gets there. Like people put up this theory, then somebody objects like to one of the conditions and then that leads to a whole thing and that's where this is. So so here's here's Suits's definition. Suits' definition is, uh, it's a classic definition of game. Uh, a game must have a prelusory goal, right? We'll talk about what that means in a second, right? So he's just going to assume yeah, uh, exactly. in the fr- at first that a game has to have a prelusory goal, um, which he considers convincing, and right. then and, and then he's going to argue then that chess is not a game because it doesn't have a prelusory goal. My argument up to section three will be all games have prelusory goals, P1, chess lacks a prelusory goal, P2, therefore chess is not a game. Um, that's the conclusion. In the final section, I, this is where the like in the final section, I abandon suits and the grasshopper and argue more generally that chess is not a game. Like that's a that's a sentence. In the final section, I abandon suits and the grasshopper and argue more generally that chess is not a game. I was so confused at first, uh, like what the grasshopper was. Like it's not. It's just it becomes clear later on. It, but it's very funny because like. The grasshopper is something suits made up. It's, yeah. There's no reason to include <laughs> the grasshopper uh, in in like yeah, true. the introduction so to true. the paper. <laughs> it's like it's uh it's they're trying too hard to be Lewis Carroll. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this had a whole Lewis Carroll yeah. kind of like, you know how like people started to do bad Tarantino movies after <laughs> Tarantino came yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> then the next section is the chess objection to the to the grasshopper, <laughs> and you wonder if he's just fucking with us at this point. I, um, I don't. But know. I don't think so. I don't think so. But I don't know that that um. In line with our previous discussion, I don't know that even he knows. So our discussion. <laughs> exactly. uh, so a game for suits is an activity directed at achieving a prelusory goal using only lusory means in <laughs> accordance with constitutive rules, which are accepted by adopting a lusory attitude. This so is the thing. It's like why? Can't, why can't you just write well? Like why? <laughs> I know that this is technical writing, and like there's reasons to to shortcut. Uh, you're writing by using the language that other people have used but honestly like would it would it be that <laughs> difficult to just say it in plain like this is not <laughs> none of these are words really <laughs> <laughs> prelusory is not a word lusory is not a word you get illusory later and you can kind of like, right you, oh, you work your way backward yeah you're like yeah oh. you, you have to work. Oh, okay <laughs> yeah yeah so like uh, let me just ask you, like, what is your sense of what a prelusory well, goal is? Well, this is the big problem. <laughs> I thought I understood it. The prelusory goal is whatever the end goal of the game is. So um, in basketball, to score more points than your opponent, like the example it gives. Or to golf, put the ball in the basket. the ball in the basket, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, because winning is different. from. <laughs> um, yeah. Like whatever the objective is, like, uh, you know cross the finish line in, in a race although that's not a game i don't know why he uses races like a race is not a game like it's sprints weird. maybe it's sprints, sprints is the game 
so yeah, whatever the end state, I think his language is the end state of affairs of the game is like the clear goal uh, that you need. That you don't need the rules to describe. <clears throat> right, That's exactly. the thing. Yeah. That like y- that, that you could describe the goal of basketball or, or sprints or lawn bowling. I don't actually know. I couldn't, but somebody <laughs> presumably right. could um, without uh, giving the rules of the game. I think the loosery means are means that are consistent with the with rules. The rules, that's right. Yeah, uh, in accordance with constitutive rules, uh, which are then accepted by adopting a loosery attitude. Now that I I um, I don't know what that. Yeah. I guess that just means like you're you're in it in the sense that like I, mm-hmm. all right I got to get the ball through the hoop, but I know I can't. Um, Right. Like I can't offensive goaltender or whatever. Like I, I can't just uh, sit on the top of the yeah, hoop and yeah. keep putting so it So like in. I'm I'm adopting the attitude that is the attitude necessary to play the game under the rules. Yeah. Which, he says to illustrate Suit's notion of games, consider golf, for example, whose prelusory goal is to get a ball in the hole. You cannot just drop the ball in the hole, however. <laughs> you must follow the less efficient means of getting the ball in the hole that are established by the rules. The reason we <laughs> obey these difficult rules is simply to make golf possible. That's the loosery attitude. <laughs> I am just learning so much about how I think of games. <laughs> then the, I love this sentence, right? At this point, the grass offers <laughs> interlocutor in the dialogue, Skepticus, announces that he will raise an objection to this definition. <laughs> I shall argue that your account of the prelusory goal has produced too narrow a definition. You take this thing, prelusory goal, that I, I don't think anybody brings to their concept of game, nor finds illuminating um, when explained what that means. But uh, <laughs> now the objection isn't to the the account of games having prelusory goal. The, the, the objection is that he's defined prelusory goal, this made-up word, too narrowly uh, a definition. So it's like you have this made-up word. No, no, he's saying that the prelusory goal uh, has produced too narrow a definition of a game by saying that that. Oh, uh, okay. That's fair. I think that I use the, like, even though I don't use the prelusory goal, I think that we use it when you say, like, if you're trying to teach somebody a brand new game, um, it often helps to just point out what the end state needs to be. So, like, you're playing, I don't know, like, sorry on a board game. And you're like, look, you just got to get your piece, all of your pieces to this point on the board. That's like, that's what you're doing. It often and, helps, but it doesn't always help. And it's not connected to whether I think it's a game. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I feel like we'd I have to reflect the, on. It. The jury is out, <laughs> depending on how well the argument works. I mean, let's say, let's just say that if there were a game where I couldn't specify the end state, it would be very difficult, and I might not play it. So it's not a game to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, if fuck a game, your game refuses to be played. Is it a game like Monopoly? Yeah. Fuck that. There's no end state. That's the. <laughs> Uh, Well, this is actually like an issue in the paper that I also wanted to ask you about. So we're talking right now about whether it's a Suitsian game, which has that condition. And we'll talk about how the condition is not fulfilled because of illusory checkmates. But then, you know, he recognizes that not everybody has accepted uh, (laughs) the idea that a Suitsian game are the only games, right? Right. So then he says in the final section of the paper, he will argue that the analysis of chess that he's uh, that he's provided offers a more general conclusion that chess is not a game of any sort, <laughs> Suitsian or otherwise. <laughs> 
And then here's the really puzzling passage, right? Like, that's a shocking, first of all, that he's going to, like, <laughs> Susie or otherwise. But here's the puzzling part. Of course, ca- chess can be played as if it were a game. <laughs> right. But the prevalence yeah. of the gamification of learning in recent years has shown us that nearly anything can be played as if it were a game. We can play math and science games, but math and science are not games. We can play chess games, but chess, like math and science, is not a game. Do you think that is just uh, pure gibberish, or do you think it is saying something coherent if misguided, <laughs> or do you just agree with it? I... <clears throat> I feel like, like with you, we didn't talk about this before. That that part, like I was like, well, write a paper on that. Like, why? So, if you, what do you mean by playing it is as if it were a game? Like right. we're What's lying to ourselves. It's like a thick layer of self deception <laughs> when I'm playing like online poker. You know, this um, is what I mean. Where there's Platonist assumptions, because yeah. if you can play it and talk about it as if it were a game, but it's not a game, then that's not how I understand words and language. I you play know? it having sex, but I'm only masturbating. <laughs> <laughs> but we can uh, play like I think there's equivocation here. If we can play math and science games, but math and science are not, not games. Game. I guess that's like, yeah, you can play math games in like sixth grade, you know, like the teacher can set up math games where the goal is to get like the most number of them right. Right. But math and science are not games. And then the idea is chess is like that, except that the difference being only that every single person <laughs> always plays chess as, right. a, 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 as if it was games, whereas that's not true with math and science, right? Yeah. It all does hinge on this, like, t- this technical definition of, of prelusory goal and why he says in chess it doesn't have him and that like it's just is like shaving the ontology of games like he's just cut off like one of the one of the like primary games played across the world by pointing out what is like i i think a pretty narrow technical definition of of a goal because everybody but, like including on liam's tweet on twitter was like no checkmate is the goal and checkmate is you know making it so that the king can't get captured like uh, can't move without being captured well, that's the, like, so this is the, the, the move that he makes. But yeah. before we get that, I just want to know if you think it makes sense to say that we play chess all the time as if it were a game, but it's not a game. Does that make any sense? <sighs> that's what, I mean, I would want to hear a lot more. Like, you know, I, I can see why people would say uh, you drink soy milk and oat milk and you're acting as if you're drinking milk. But you're not drinking right. milk. Like there's some way in which I like I don't find the idea objectionable to say you're playing it as if it were a game. But I see what you're getting at though, because <laughs> if if I'm treating it like a game and enjoying it and having the attitude that it is a game, how much more does it need to be to be called a game? <laughs> if not Nothing. that very zero. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if like if I'm working on an assembly line and um it's just boring and tedious. And like, I like, I'm a, I'm like Lucy Ricardo when she's having to like put chocolates in the boxes or whatever in that classic. And, and I just, in my mind, just start pretending like they're uh, little flies that I have to capture and I'm a frog. <laughs> I've made up a game. It's a game. Right. 
Like, right. Like, but you've legitimately made up a game. Like, I, I made up a game where I would, like, throw a tennis ball at, like, this compost heap and when I lived in North Carolina that we have. And, like, my dog would go get it. And, like, I like I made up a game. But, like, but like it's a game because I, cause I thought of it as a game. And when, like, my brother came over or friends and we played the game, we treated it as a game. That's it. It's done. It's a game. Like, there's no... Uh, I don't know, but uh, I, this guy right. just this guy must run around saying this is not a game. <laughs> you know you're not playing a game. Like you look up to like uh, what's the New York Square where they always play chess? <laughs> oh yeah, in um in the park. Uh, yeah, in the park. Uh, yeah, like, you know guys. this isn't a game, right? <laughs> like just so you know. No, okay. So let's. I I actually think <laughs> all joking aside, like the thing about illusory checkmates is. I don't know. Kind of interesting. It is interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I thought I figured you like I'm not a chess player, so I thought you would get more out of this discussion because there's some interesting stuff about about the game yeah. of chess in here. But 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 it, completely disconnected. I think the interest yeah. <laughs> is completely disconnected from the argument. So right. so the 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 idea is that people will say, like you said, uh, the prelusory goal of um, chess is to checkmate your opponent. And what does that uh, mean? Well, it means that you attack the king in a way that the king um, can't move. Right. Yeah. So if that's what you think. Now, that's before the rules are discussed. Like, if you were trying to explain the purpose of chess, you would say to checkmate your opponent, and then you would explain what that is. But according to the author, that can't be right because there are checkmates that could never come in a game, right? So if all you're telling them is the goal is to checkmate, then you're not telling them really what the prelusory goal is because they could be imagining a checkmate that you could never get on a chessboard following the rules of chess. And somehow this is supposed to mean that chess lacks a prelusory goal, which of course means chess is not a game in the Suitsian sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's that step that that I, I'm also having trouble with, um, which is... I, the clearest way um, in which I understood it was when he talks about the historical uh, fact of chess, um, which that which I found super interesting, uh, where he where he says, <clears throat> um, people s- set up the rules of chess, but it couldn't have been obvious that checkmate um, was a goal that you could achieve given the rules that you had set up. And so it appears to be, um, like, I mean, he's very cautious in saying. Wait, wait, that's not. I, I, that's not true. Uh, so he he says that that as uh, likely when chess started getting played, the goal was simply to capture more pieces than the other person, and it wasn't until later that it became clear that checkmate was a state in which you could make the goal. So like you could set up the rules, you could say like, oh, I'm going to set up a board and give particular movements to all these pieces and still never realize that the the state of the board that is checkmate could be the- But this is, 
I, I read that as not a historical fact about the way it was developed, but just the complexity of chess is such that when you look at a certain position, like he describes in Diagram 6, you don't know if that's legal or not. Uh, he says that, but he has a whole section. Hold on, let me find the, the section. Uh, first, I believe that I have established the checkmate is not a historically prelusory goal, and I think it is a very interesting fact, even if it does not entail that chess is not a game, suits or otherwise. The earliest origins of chess have been lost in the mists of time, but if my analysis is correct, then the invention of chess could not, could not have been like the invention of golf or most other games. The inventor of chess could not have started with the goal of chess and then built a game around it. The inventor could, could have defined checkmate just as we do and might even have laid out the pieces in a checkmate pattern before the first game of chess was ever played. However, because of the existence of illusory checkmates, the inventor of chess could not have known with certainty until at least one game of chess had been played that illusory checkmates existed and that chess as we know it is therefore a possible game. The existence of illusory checkmates and of chess as we play it today is a discovery made by moving chess pieces on a board according to certain rules. It is not prelusory given the way that the possibility of dropping a ball in a hole, crossing a finish line, swimming to the end of a pool, or jumping over a higher bar than one's opponent are all prelusory givens. Okay. And so he quotes somebody that says, this conjecture is supported by what we do know about the early history of chess, which is the history of a game in nearly constant transformation until it finally settled down into its current form only a few hundred years ago. Quote, in early chess, the player who was robbed of all his men lost the game. Robbed of all the men? Yeah. So you had to not just pin I guess the, you would, the final move would be to capture. So I don't, I don't get this. My first reaction, I think, when I read it was to say, well, like the origins of how a game developed doesn't affect like whether it's a game now. Like who the fuck knows how baseball was developed or yeah. how, um, you know, like who knows like all the different variations they thought of before. Like what makes chess different than like probably most games in that they went through an evolutionary period where the, the uh, objective wasn't uh, the same that it is right now. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's trying to make the argument that logically it can't be a prelusory goal and he's providing evidence that that empirically it wasn't. Something, something, the complexity of it, what it means to, to put something in checkmate is not clearly obvious when you set up the rules of chess but in the way I, that I it would be when you set up the rules of basketball. Like the rules of basketball contain the goal. The rules of chess don't contain the goal. And so you can think up the rules of chess and and it still would be uh, something that is not known until you played that first game of chess that that could be something that you put on the board. It's not in the rules. Yeah, I just I guess I just don't get that. You know, I don't like, think I do either. <laughs> I'm trying because, to I'm trying to give it a fair shake. Um, like you might have this idea of like I have these pieces and I'm going to put them on a eight by eight board um, and I'm going to have them move in certain ways and that seems interesting and now I'm just going to figure out like how the pieces move and what would be like you can do a checkmate in like four moves so you can. The, it's not that it's impossible to imagine when you're conceiving of the game that that could possibly be a goal. And and my understanding, at least originally, of prelusory goal was that it's not dependent on anything like the history of it. It's just dependent on how you describe the game, maybe to somebody who hasn't played or maybe to just somebody in general when you're describing it. Yeah, 
I mean, I have this vague sense of what he's trying to say, which is that you can say all of the things about how a chessboard is set up and how the players are allowed to move, and it still not be uh, clear that that end state of checkmate is what that, that's I mean, like, an like that's true of football too, right? Like you could set up all the rules. There's, there's no rule that says that but very clearly. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Like what like, if the goal is to get to like in darts or something, it's to hit a very specific score. And so, well, um, that's actually an objection that some people were raising on, tw- on Liam's uh, tweet too, which is like, it doesn't seem that special to chess. Like it's not, it's not just that you have to hit the bullseye and darts. Like, yeah, it's like... No, not at all. And sometimes it's that you have to score, like, fewer points because <laughs> you're closer to the target, you know? And football could have been like that. Football could have been... You have to have the highest number of points that is... But it has to be, like, an odd number of points or something. I don't know. You settle on on these things. Again, like, I feel like now we're... He's do we're doing what he he's winning like we're doing what he wants us this to is, do. This is though this is uh why I like we can we can do <laughs> get sucked into conceptual analysis. I think I think I don't understand this argument. Like that's my charitable take at least but my uncharitable one is that he is not clear. Um with this this language like he could have written better. And it's, it's not that it's like, I, I think you could write this beautifully and it would still be completely inane. No, no, not the inanity, the other, whether we understand it, like it's pretty uh, clear that we don't understand the argument. Well, so, so like it could be an inane argument that I understand and dismiss. So, but I, I think, okay, let's see if we understand it. So <laughs> he gives a bunch of diagrams that show checkmates that could never happen based on the rules. Right. And the first three are kind of obvious, right? There's one where this is the one that is going to haunt us. Just (laughs) all all the queens and just this poor king in the uh, top right corner, I guess, uh, H8. And everything else is a queen except for the white king at A1. Yeah, white Um, queens and a black king. White queens, interesting, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm not saying they should um, retract the paper, but... (laughs) And maybe he's making a comment on on white supremacy, who knows? <laughs> and also like women are fucking taking over. <laughs> I'm sure this was the discussion he wanted people to have. This was what it was. Uh, th- there's one kind of interesting one, which is the but purely interesting from a chess. Um, he gives us the diagram five, why that was impossible. I mean, it's pretty like it wasn't immediately obvious to me why it was impossible. Like I had to take a second and be like, oh, yeah, I see that that's impossible. And there's a lot of chess problems. Like I used to do these, um, yeah. I don't know, about 15 years ago. Like I would do these chess problems and some of them really do fuck with the rules or play with impossible positions, you know. And, yeah. Yeah. and in that sense, like they're puzzles. They're not games at that point. And that's fully, I, I would agree with that. And if that's his point, that chess can often be used for, like, not as a game, <laughs> then that's fine, you know? Yeah. Um, but I get, yeah, then there's that sixth diagram, which is, is this a uh, illusory checkmate or not? And the fact that we can't figure out whether it is, is supposed to be really important for the <laughs> argument. Right. I mean, the fact that there are illusory checkmates at all is supposed to be really important to the argument. But, uh, but... Because illusory, because there's there is a uh, illusory checkmates aren't just cheated checkmates. They're it's it's something deeper. That's like um, supposed to show 
that merely saying that you have to trap your king to trap the opponent's king isn't enough because there are all these illusory ones. But I, I, again, I'm not sure how this. And, and how is that different from saying like the goal is to like put the ball in the end zone without saying jumping from the the stands into the end zone with the ball won't like, like what I, that's what this is the part of it that I don't get. I'm sure he has an answer. Like if he was here, he could tell us, but um, this is why the whole thing just spins into craziness. Well, and, and, and he goes like, he, he goes into like these r- distinctions about like d- distinguishing between the institution of chess versus the game that's being played that supposedly saves his argument from some um, some d- deep objection. And at that point, he completely lost me. Where when you're distinguishing between like what I what he means by institution versus game, I, I just yeah. don't I don't I, I lost the desire to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> I take back. He must think that this is metaphysics, because or else why why bother? In section six, he says, if the argument above is sound, then chess is not a game in the sense developed by suits. But this does not, it's cool that his name is Suits, actually. (laughs) But this does not entail that chess is not a game, since Suits' theory of games may be flawed. Thank you for that concession. (laughs) (laughs) More argument is needed to prove that chess is not a game in any sense. And so then he says uh, he's going to do that, which you sort of wonder why. You know, you would yeah. start with that. He says a single section can't do that. Well, <laughs> but you had more sections if you didn't do the thing with the Suitsian game, because I don't think anybody it, embraces that beyond like the, the the weirdos that are in this debate. It's like a Fermat's last theorem. Like I don't have space to show how awesome this proof is. <laughs> this is where the thing about um, you know, is it lucery or not? being uncertain this is where that plays into his argument i don't know if you had checked out by this point um (laughs) where are you but so like um on page 19 of the pdf um right here where he says the crux of this paper is the existence of illusory checkmates but not just that they're illusory but that it can't be pointed to very far in advance and uh because of the complexity yeah so he says these are interesting philosophically because of what they entail about the nature of chess. Illusory checkmates demonstrate that the goal of chess, illusory checkmate, is not pre-illusory but rather post-illusory, both logically and historically. <laughs> the fact that checkmate is possible within chess is knowable only by playing chess. Without playing chess, we can know that the chess pieces can be arranged on the chessboard so that the definition of checkmate is satisfied. But we can wonder: is such an arrangement of pieces realizable by following the rules of chess? Are there any illusory checkmates? For all we know, before playing chess, chess might be like a jigsaw puzzle whose pieces do not all fit together, no matter how hard we try. We always end up with holes in the picture or missing pieces. Before we play chess, we have no way to know that the pieces fit together to create checkmate in a game. For all we know, prior to playing chess, all checkmates are illusory, and chess is an impossible endeavor. Illusory checkmates are not things we lay down as goals ahead of the invention of chess. They are discoveries made by people who engage with the rule-governed universe of chess, the chessboard and its pieces. So does this depend on the fact that the rules were in place before the goal was in place? Yeah, that's what I, I was trying to say earlier. That, 
Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily true. Like, do we know that the knight always moved like the knight moved? Like, they just came up, they were like, uh, this can't be questioned, um, how each of the pieces move. Now right. let's figure out an objective. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that's, like, certainly nothing he says suggests that that was the history. The pieces and how they move and the rules themselves, never mind, like, a rule like en passant or something like that. Right. Like, I, they, I guarantee that not all of those rules came before uh, right. The Some of them might checkmate come, was an ob- objective. Right. Some of them might have come after, and I don't know if that would change his his view. Like if if su- a substantial, like if it used to be that all all pieces moved the same, but then people realized that checkmate was a possible end state. They made that the goal and started saying, "Well, now let's make the knight move this way um, because that can like be a, a way to achieve checkmate." Then then it seems like it would it would be a game. But I kind of like, whether or not it's a game, like, fuck that. I kind of like the idea that people set down the rules of chess and started playing and didn't quite know whether or not you could ever trap a king properly. Right. That's kind of cool. That, I don't that think there it has certain anything things to do. set in stone. There were certain things set in stone about chess. And then it's like, well, let's see like what we can do with this. You know, yeah, like you like, would do with like a theory in science or something. I think that's what he wants to say. Yeah. I, I don't think that it has anything to do. Like it just to me is points to the beauty of the complexity of the game. Um, and and that's where I'm happy to say, well, buddy, <laughs> like, like, let's go play a game of chess. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess chess, you know, given the popularity of puzzles and of all sorts of, you know, ways of approaching chess that don't involve playing somebody and trying to checkmate them, it's true that chess give like we might be just buying his argument at this point. <laughs> I love this. It's true that that chess offers a kind of world of possibilities that some sports don't. Although I bet you could do, or not sports, but games don't. I bet you could do this for a lot of different kinds of games, you know, Um, games like it's not the only complex. That's what I was curious about. I was was curious about like how many things that we would consider games fit into that, like would get, would get uh, sliced off by his ontological razor. (laughs) Yeah. I, again, to be very clear, like, I think that is not, uh, like, that is a complete pseudo question, whether this means yeah. it's a game, but it might point to something different about chess than from lawn bowling right. or, or sprints, right. you know? Right. Yeah. And, and it could be interesting just for that reason. Like, so... And it ends kind of mystically, which I like, right? <laughs> like he starts talking about mathematics and chess in the mind of God, maybe a branch of mathematics. So he starts really going uh, <laughs> yeah. metaphysical and then it gets sort of mystical t- at the end. He says, however, chess is not physics either because chess is not about anything. It represents nothing beyond itself except perhaps metaphorically. You might say that the universe of chess that we discover is midway between the worlds of heaven and earth, between mathematics and physics, as Stephen Zweig passionately remarks in the chess story, I guess a a book that he wrote. And he says he concludes with the memorable passage that inspired that paper. But I like that. Uh, Yeah, it's cool. uh, Midway between the worlds of heaven and earth. (laughs) It's like it's Platonism at that point, you know? And I'm down for that. (laughs) Fuck it.
<laughs> Good job, uh, uh, Michael Hickson. You got you got more out of Tamler uh, in the analytical the analytic philosophy side of Tamler than I think has happened for years. <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, we thought this was an opening segment, but I think it might have like might be one of our most important main segments. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I, I, like, like I'm, I'm a little confused right now. Am I convinced by gr- grasshopper? <laughs> he's, he's standing over you. It's a giant. It's definitely a giant grasshopper. <laughs> and he's like with his little like legs together. You know, like just like. <laughs> Chess is not a game. I told you. I told you. Yeah. I am absolutely fascinated by the insane possibilities um, of, of a chessboard. Like, yeah. It really is like that every chess game could be played and never be repeat. Like you'd never repeat like in, in an eight by eight board. It's like infinity in an eight by eight board. Yeah. It is a very mystical kind of game. It lends itself to that kind of thinking because mm-hmm. of its just infinite complexity. Somebody suggested a while back that we do Herman Hesse's uh, The Glass Bead Game, which I read a long time ago, maybe 15 or 20 years ago. But it, it plays with a lot of these uh, kinds of questions, actually, about, like, you know, the 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 interplay of games as a kind of metaphysical and spiritual enterprise uh, yeah it might be fun to do it would have to be like a summer thing because it's an um, it's a real novel it's but real, real um, book. yeah yeah the weird studies guys have an, a nice couple episodes that reminded me about reading it and i remember liking it a lot yeah i'd be down i can't believe we didn't talk about the uh the vibrating anal beads controversy <laughs> oh my god Shall we close the episode by talking about that? <laughs> sure. I, I forgot to even prepare by reading anything about it. But if you, yeah, I didn't either. Um, <laughs> I could talk about the poker one, but um, <laughs> oh yeah, the you know I think it, there was a big scandal where it looked like people are using computers to signal the chess players' uh, moves via the use of anal beads. That's it's so brilliant if it's true. Um, do you think this could be like a legal defense? Like you can't cheat if it's not a game. Chess is not a game. Therefore, I did uh, not cheat. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe Michael it's Hickson like, wrote this just so that he could be a legal expert. Yeah, <laughs> called. <he'll> bring him <laughs> in. Yeah, I mean, like expert witnesses get paid a shitload of money. You know? <laughs> yeah, they do. So like it would also turn like a checkmate that we thought was lusory into <laughs> something that might be illusory or post-lusory or quasi lusory maybe because it's legal in a certain sense but also not because of the anal beat <laughs> imagine figuring out a way to both win at chess and get that sweet vibration in your ass <laughs> i mean <laughs> It's win-win. It's the next day, like everything in life after that is just <laughs> downhill. <laughs> and uh, there's gonna there's a lot of those kinds of things now. You know, um, there was one in poker, which hasn't been settled yet, whether the, the woman actually did cheat via the use, not of anal beads, I think in this case, but of some kind of vibration. There's always vibration. You know, um, <clears throat> magicians use uh, a little device um, for like mind reading stuff 
um, mm-hmm. where uh, they'll communicate to the person doing mind reading via like like strapped to your ankle. It's like a little thing that taps you, and they call it the thumper. Mm-hmm. So so I'm you know cheaters use thumpers a lot. I'm surprised that it hasn't happened. Is that more. cheating at mag- at magicianing? You know, it's interesting because there are rules. To, to magic, you know, generally agreed upon rules about what is uh, like bad practice in magic. And yeah. that's not. So like if you can find a way to communicate um, for a mind reading act, that's not. What is considered cheating is having a stooge in the audience. So if like right. if a stooge says like, oh my God, you guessed it or whatever, that's actually like <laughs> bad. Yeah. Are there ones that are kind of on the borderline, like using like a video camera or something? Yeah, oh, yeah. Of... That's a good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, um, actually, magic through editing uh, right. is is considered just bad practice. But by the way, Chris Angel is one of the guys who gets most blamed for for like just being a terrible magician because he violates these rules. But yeah, if you didn't really do something and like you splice in footage of your levitating, you know, yeah. like after the fact. That's actually considered bad practice. And uh, people have been accused of this a lot. Like there was a Netflix series where a guy did seemingly incredible things. And he swears up and down that there was no camera tricks. But there's no way to prove it. There's just absolutely zero way to know whether or not they spliced in footage later on. (laughs) So like, could you write a paper saying not just that it was bad practice, but that it's not magic? (laughs) Yeah. I I find that much less aversive a paper like an idea than 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 you do, but may, but maybe you don't find it like as long as we both agree that when I say it's not magic, I just mean that it's like it doesn't follow the rules. Yeah, and that the rules, yeah. and maybe that the rules are um, like not just arbitrary. That that there yeah. is some sort of order um, that has emerged, so right. that you could like, predict. Even if somebody had never done something, you could predict whether or not that would be an instance of cheating. It's not just pure convention. And like, I bet it would be very hard or just impossible and also unnecessary to specify exactly like yeah. in a general way what what is cool and what is not right. cool. Right. You know, it's uh, because if you try to say, well, it has to be hard. And if you have a stooge, like anybody can do that. Yeah. Well, I bet you can find a lot of counterexamples to it has to be hard. You know, there's probably a lot of. Right. Magic. Like you can buy ready-made gimmicks from a shop um, right. and, and make it seem like you have. Like yeah. these powers, you know, of like, uh, uh, yeah, I've done that. Like the, the, there's a great like mind reading one, which has cards. And Don't that's reveal a great it. One. Oh, sorry. I'll cut that out. I loved that one. But that, yeah. that's the thing is like, uh, it's magic, but I could do it. It does take a little practice, but yeah, not much. Yeah. And You're I could you have do to re- it. You have to remember um, what's on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. But it's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that is a mind blower. Like, you know, real magicians use that all the time because it's so mind-blowing and if you don't expect it they'll like carry around that deck with them just in case like um okay here's my first time somebody showed it to me i was like i need to know how to do it. no i know you're like no this is actually impossible yeah yeah like that's legitimately (laughs) magic and then he was like i can't and then but i think i was such a pain in the ass that he was like all right i'm not going to tell you but it's called this you could probably look it up on google but i don't think you should and i did immediately (laughs) Okay, uh, I'm going to ask a final question. Yeah. If you splice this into the podcast at an earlier time, have you cheated on the podcast? 
<laughs> right. Is it a podcast? <laughs> Is this a main segment? <laughs> Is this a main segment? Ceci ne pas. Yeah, uh, main segment. <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.